This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, this is Garki, and today I have with me Dr. Nieder Heiser. He is an assistant professor of English at Kent State University at Stark. He also coordinates the professional writing studies program and teaches composition, li- digital literacies, and popular culture. In uh, various journals, I have read his articles about composition studies, occlusion of pedagogical genres, and uh, metaphoric language associated with teaching. He uh, joins me today to talk about his book, Writing the Classroom, Pedagogical Documents as Rhetorical Genre, published by University Press of Colorado last year. Hello, Dr. Niederheiser. How are you today? Hello, Gary. I'm doing quite well. I'm very happy to be here with you. As always, I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to be? What were your some initial ideas when you started this project? Well, um, that's a it's an interesting uh, path that this one took. Um, it really started out of a desire to shine a brighter light on many of the genres of writing that underpin academia as an institution the you know we you and me both were part of uh, academic university settings and um you know kind of thinking about what it is that we write in those types of settings was really important to me now First off, though, what happened was, as you mentioned there, some of my past research uh, has begun with a primary interest in the metaphors, uh, the metaphoric language that people use. Specifically, in my case, uh, I was interested in looking at how metaphors get used to describe the concept of writing. I come from writing studies, and that's uh, um, something that I was very interested in looking into, especially how people talked about uh, writing as a a topic or a subject that can be taught or learned and what metaphors they use. So what I found there was that there's a lot of metaphoric language to be found in the scholarship on writing in how researchers and scholars would suggest various metaphors for thinking about how to conceptualize the act of writing and how to teach the process of writing. Now, what I really was finding in all of that, though, was um, I was more interested in seeing what actual teachers wrote about when they were thinking about those metaphors. And so what that all brought me to was looking at the for the very beginning of this whole process, the the genre of the statement of teaching philosophy, which sometimes just simply gets called the teaching statement, right? Uh, this is one of those documents that many university faculty have had to or will have to compose at some point in their careers uh, for various purposes. Uh, someone may need to provide one with an uh, application when they're applying for a faculty position or as part of their portfolio when they're applying for reappointment or tenure, or if they're just being considered for a teaching award to basically say, you know, hey, give us a snapshot of, of how you teach your activity as a teacher in the classroom. Just a way to give readers a sense of how that individual kind of functions in that capacity in the in the classroom as a teacher, what they think is important as a teacher, and how it connects to the the writer's broader academic identity. Now, as I started exploring teaching statements, because I wanted to see the metaphoric language that got associated with the concept of writing in those types of documents, um, what I found was actual teachers, everyone from graduate students to fully tenured professors, used a lot of of metaphoric language. And I thought it was really fascinating. But at the same time, I realized I needed to get a, a stronger basis for understanding that as that document as a genre, not just as something that gets used as part of a, a job application, but as a as a, a, a 
rhetorical act itself. But the challenge that I really faced there had nothing to do with metaphors per se, but really had to do with the disconnect that I found in published work about the purported value and exigence of the teaching statement as like a snapshot of teaching, as this kind of valuable document reflecting a teacher's professional and academic identity, and the perceived diminishment or even dismissal of that document in published scholarship. Um, published work on the teaching statement oftentimes fits kind of into one of two categories. Uh, there's either one kind of the tutorial style how-to pieces that lay out an explicit formula or template for how to write a teaching statement, or the more popular academic press articles that basically just kind of question the genre itself, whether the teaching statement is even relevant or necessary, complaining that it's too formulaic or disingenuous, basically that there's no rhetorical merit or practical value to the genre. However, what I was finding in my own research, my own study of teaching statements, was that they had the capacity to really perform a lot of significant rhetorical functions by enabling an author to position themselves as dynamic teachers whose practices were informed and endorsed by disciplinary research and identities they had that were grounded in complex and overlapping subjectivities. Now, I'm talking a lot about teaching statements, I realize, and not about the book yet. And there's a reason, which is that what I, what I really found was that what I was looking at and, and, and learning about teaching statements stood in a lot of ways in opposition to the bulk of published literature on this document that is, for all intents and purposes, a uh, exclusively for the purposes of reflecting teaching. It's not something that may be appearing in the classroom per se, but it is something that's supposed to show what happens in the classroom for a teacher, whether that teacher is a graduate student, teaching assistant, whether it's a full professor, whether it's a high school teacher, whatever the case may be. And the, like I said, these really kind of stood in opposition, what I was finding, to what um, the published work was saying, which kind of reflected this idea that they were just kind of two-dimensional texts that simply reflected a teacher's activity. They, they, they were just tedious documents filled with empty platitudes and buzzwords, simply meant to appeal to a reader to get them a job sort of thing. So what I found with my work there was that I, I, was, I was opening up a real gateway into seeing how... This was not exclusive to the teaching statement. There are so many genres of writing that are primarily composed by teachers as seen, and, and they are seen as a kind of a separate category of genre study. Um, the, this should be noted that, I mean, there's a healthy body of scholarly research on many types of writing done in all sorts of areas of human interaction. Uh, there's genre studies that explore the types of writing that gets done in a professional business environment, uh, in the medical industry, in the legal court systems of, of the world, and even within academia itself. For instance, like how do students write, obviously, but also, and most pertinent to my own interests, by academics, like the type of writing that, by, that academics do, but with a caveat that a lot of the, the study of the writing that academics do focuses on their research identity, not their teaching identity. The behind the scenes writing, for instance, that you know an academic does um, whenever they're uh, preparing a, a book for publication or an article or scholarly research, in other words, um, like not just the writing or composing of that book or article itself, but the process of writing the submission letter that might be sent to an academic journal along with an article manuscript or the drafting of a, of a proposal to present one's work at a research conference. These types of writings and genres have gotten a lot of attention over the last oh, you know, 20 to 30 years and some in some pretty notable ways. However, the writing that an academic might do as part of their pedagogical identity as a faculty member who teaches uh, both inside and outside of the classroom environment, how that gets represented, that gets a lot less in, uh, uh, attention um, outside of those published pieces that give kind of oversimplified one size fits all advice on how to write a teaching statement or a classroom syllabus or a grading rubric. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring light to the fact that the genres that are written in academic settings for pedagogical purposes to facilitate teaching are just as rhetorical in nature as other genres of writing. And there's one last thing that I should confess, which is uh, my desire to publish a book advocating for the rhetorical study of pedagogical genres also stems 
at least in part a little bit from a minor amount of spite. (laughs) What I mean there is when I first prepared my own research on the teaching statement that I was describing earlier, um, I submitted that article, an article based on that research to a scholarly journal that was well-known and well-established as championing the study of academic genres of writing. And it was swiftly rejected uh, with the editorial response clearly indicating they didn't even read the manuscript. They just looked at the title and saw the word teaching in it. And they stated in their response, they were not interested in publishing anything that had to do with teaching. And so that provided me a powerful motivation to prove that I wasn't the only one who thought that pedagogical documents, teaching genres, were they deserved scholarly attention. And uh, I was kind of in that way of thinking, it's like, well, fine, I'll just do it myself, by gosh. <laughs> and so I began the process of really casting about to find other researchers, you know, scholars and teachers who were just as invested in bringing a certain rhetorical legitimacy to pedagogical genres. And the result of that search was this book. It's an edited collection representing 25 different academics analyzing and discussing a variety of pedagogical genres, ranging from the syllabus and the assignment sheet, for instance, all the way to like departmental teaching handbooks or university mandated outcome statements and how those apply uh, for the the teaching identity in, in the academic world. And this leads me very nicely into my second question, which is, how did these authors come to be? Did you have an open call for papers or did you individually contact people you knew beforehand on whose works you had read? Um, interestingly, the uh, there were a few people that I recognized from the 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 kind of the the scholarship that did exist in the area of my, my interest. Uh, did lead me to certain people who I thought, okay, I want to make sure this person has the opportunity to contribute something. And so I had reached out to a handful of people in that regard of saying, hey, I know that you do this sort of stuff. I found it to be really influential for me. Would you be interested in in joining in a, a book like this? Um, but there's still just a handful of people because there's just, there there aren't a lot. I mean, I would say that the, the, the genre associated with the teaching uh, endeavor that gets the most attention in in published scholarship is the syllabus. A lot of people do talk about the syllabus. There's still a lot of people who, or a lot of published work that does end up in one of those categories I mentioned earlier of kind of like, here's how to write the perfect syllabus. But there's there are also separately, there are people who are genuinely interested in saying, let's look at the rhetorical nature. What happens whenever you write a syllabus and use certain types of language to present that syllabus to a student? So there were there were people like that, and there were some people who did that sort of thing with like assignment prompts. But beyond that, the 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 published the body of published work or literature on pedagogical genres was um, not as 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 robust. Um, and I and I hope anyone listening who might feel that they fit into that category doesn't feel under underappreciated or acknowledged by any means. And so I did reach out to a few people, but what I ended up doing really was kind of uh, very anxiously putting out a, a an open call for papers um, uh, pr- proposals to start with. Um, and I you know submitted this through a, a handful of different uh, kind of um, uh, broad national and international, uh, list serves and 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 online networks um, and had this shared at a couple of the larger disciplinary uh, co- conferences and conventions in in the field of writing studies as well and it actually picked up a little bit of steam and got reshared by some of those folks into other groups and communities and um, uh, basically just asking people to submit proposals for chapters that explored these different types of of, uh, of of rhetorical pedagogical genres, and I was really surprised at the results. Um, I was kind of hoping, whenever I sent out the call for proposals, that it's like, well, maybe I'll get fifteen or twenty that, and and I'll be able to kind of pick from those what what might be the best ones to go with. And if I don't get enough, maybe I'll do a second round and try to find some through other areas. I ended up with somewhere oh uh, somewhere around seventy different proposals on all sorts of different topics. And I was a bit overwhelmed. I was, I was so happy to receive that sort of stuff. And um, the, the, these, these proposals came from all 
sorts, all, the whole range of academic uh, uh, participants. I had uh, graduate students working on their masters or PhDs. I uh, who's who were doing their theses or their dissertations on something related to this, all the way up to full professors who were really interested in kind of exploring their own uh, rhetorical activity through a, a, a career's worth of pedagogical documents, looking at the the uh, the the grading feedback or the syllabi that they had assigned or given to students over the course of 15 to 20 years in some cases so a lot of really amazing response to that and which posed its own challenge of like okay how do i how do i pick well what would the best thing to really focus on for something like this would be mm-hmm. and um it's just i mean this is not something in my notes but i still want to ask uh, mm-hmm. about the the cover picture on the book is this mm-hmm. about this, like rhetorical revolution from newton's apple is is that I like that. that. No, (laughs) I I like your explanation much more than the actual one. (laughs) I'm going to use that from now on. (laughs) Uh, But no, actually, (laughs) um, I uh, whenever the the book was going through the final processes of of uh, preparation for print, um, the uh, the press U- Utah State University Press, it, which is a uh, an imprint from University of Colorado Press. Uh, whenever they were finalizing everything, getting ready to go ahead and take it to the presses, they reached out to me and we talked about what kind of cover do we want to have for this. And um, and I was I, I told them I was like, boy, what kind of cover art do you really put on a book that's all about documents? Uh, you know the the rhetorical study of of teaching documents and and um, I I kind of offhandedly jokingly said something along the lines of like well you know unless you want to just put a picture of a of a teacher's desk on the cover with just piles of papers on it or something like that and, you know and I happened to mention like you know and like an apple in the corner because that idea that uh, comes at least a lot in in uh, American culture of you know bringing an apple for the teacher sort of thing and I just meant it kind of this offhanded joke but um, the uh, graphic designers for the for the book uh, got in touch with me a little later and they said man we just kept coming back to this, this idea of the apple and how you know in in a lot of ways thinking metaphorically that this really is this kind of visual metaphor that people associate with the teacher and and so the idea of putting kind of a a stylized image of an apple on the on the cover really kind of stood out and uh and i liked it and i thought boy that 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 works well however now that i have have your suggested idea i've got i've got a couple different ways i can look at it <laughs> um i mean this is something that you have talked about uh mm-hmm in in your um, introduction uh, right now but mm-hmm. if you could talk uh, more specifically about the title of this book um, mm-hmm. as you said there are many books in the market about writing how to write uh, thesis papers um, mm-hmm. statements things like that mm-hmm. but and you're correct I have not come across a lot of books that talk about the genres of the classroom mm-hmm. um and this is uh this is an important topic in in your introduction uh, where you're claiming and if i've understood it correctly is the idea of genre can help us understand pedagogy um mm-hmm. is this correct or um is my interpretation really tangent to oh no absolutely correct um the 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 connection between the documents that we write and how we actually enact pedagogy in the classroom, I think, is very important. And um, and so, for instance, as I mentioned, you know, the syllabus gets a lot of attention, uh, the lion's share of attention when it comes to rhetorical study. Uh, if you look back over the past fifteen or twenty years of of, of uh, scholarship, and one of the things that gets emphasized a lot is the idea that the the language that you use in a document, such as a, a, a classroom syllabus, that gets handed out to students at the start of the semester or at the start of the the, the course uh, term. Uh, it sets the stage for what the rest of the class is really going to be like. It's not just saying, okay, here's what you need to know about this class, this informational document. It's also, in some ways, um, a as I even tell my own students, it's kind of a constitutional document. It's creating a community of that classroom and how we're all going to interact, how I'm going as, a, as the instructor, how I'm going to 
uh, engage with the students and how the students can understand their own engagement with me as well as with each other. And so at a base level, you know, a, a document like that really uh, uh, puts a lot of importance on what what is this pedagogy going to look like? And there are, there are definitely cases one could find where a person's syllabus, a teacher's syllabus doesn't match how they actually teach. And there becomes this disconnect um, where maybe their their syllabus is incredibly like straightforward and very clinical in its language, almost legalistic in in how it, it presents the the classroom. This is how things will be done, and this is you know, this is what you are responsible for, and in turn, this is what I am going to be presenting in this kind of like almost legal contract sort of way. But then, whenever you actually go into the classroom and and, and interact with the teacher, you find that that teacher is actually you know uh, very uh, much more casual about things and is actually you know not this kind of like hard lined, you know, everything must go by these sort of rules sort of thing. And then you realize and you wonder, it's like, wow, you know, what, 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 what disconnect, why that disconnect there? And some of that comes, I would say, from how teachers have not always been given the opportunity when preparing to learn how to teach the opportunity for, for being critically self-reflective of how those documents reflect their identities and what it means when they're, uh, when they're, you know, what, what they believe in pedagogically, how they think teaching should happen, what they find to be important about their topic of teaching, not just in writing. I come from writing studies, but this applies just as much to someone from chemistry or biology as it does in writing or in literature. It's like, what, what are you kind of infusing into those documents and how are you assuming the reader is going to take something out of that? A very good example that comes from personal experience was I was speaking with a, a, a good close friend who is in the history department at my university, and they were expressing some frustration to me about how their students were not really meeting the what they wanted them to get out of a certain assignment. They were asking their students to do an analysis of a, of a historical document that they found to themselves, like the students had to find a, a primary source historical document and do an analysis of it and present that research in an essay form. And um, they were telling me that they just they 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 don't seem to be getting it and i and and they were questioning it's like well is this a problem that the students are not prepared for that or they they don't know how to write properly and i said well let's take a look at it and we we looked and we talked about and what we really found was the assumptions that the 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 professor was making when crafting the assignment sheet itself were based on their own perspective and subjectivity as a not as a history professor trying to teach students but as a history professor who's scholarship is on primary source material. They were using language, they were presenting scenarios that their students were not yet familiar with and that they didn't have the, uh, the their students didn't have the language yet to, to, kind of, uh, to kind of conceptualize themselves in that role. And so one of the things that, that the, the, the professor had to really do was kind of re-envision what the perspective was for that assignment from their students' perspective, from what they would be seeing, what they would be understanding, comprehending, not just thinking, oh, well, we have to cater to, you know, they don't know as much, so that we have to kind of, I'm going to use a phrase that I really hate, but this is one that gets used by different people sometimes in academia, that we have to dumb it down for them or something like that. It's not that at all. What it is, is thinking, okay, who is your audience? Rhetorically speaking, what do they know? What do they need to know? And how are you going to bring them to the, to the level that you're hoping for? They're not already at your level. And so what is that process? And so in a, in a simple case such as that, thinking about the rhetoric of that document is absolutely reflective of your pedagogy in what you think teaching should be in that moment. And so that's one example that does relate to the classroom. I'll give one other example really quickly. I don't want to belabor it too much, but um, thinking about how some of these documents um, uh, that relate to the classroom have 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 purposes and functions outside of the classroom is really important. Um, something that I talk about uh, in, in my introduction to the book and definitely gets attended to by some of the other contributors of the book is the idea that something like, for instance, the, the classroom syllabus or an assignment sheet doesn't just get read by students. 
it gets read by other faculty members, by administrators, uh, by university uh, 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 individuals in the university system in a way that is different than how the student's going to read that same document. So a student might be reading that assignment sheet that I explained uh, and trying to think, how do I write an essay about this thing? A fellow colleague uh, history professor might be reading that assignment sheet as part of the, the professor's reappointment or tenure file and saying, does this assignment sheet reflect pedagogy in the way I think it should be done by my own colleagues? So it becomes uh, it becomes an evaluative document as much as it's purporting to give students an assignment that's going to evaluate them they're going to they're, they're potentially going to be evaluated themselves by that and so the idea of how to make sure that you're expressing your pedagogical identity most effectively is doubly important because it's not just for the classroom but also outside of it oh. and this uh two examples um are really good uh examples of how um, syllabus uh, is not a simple document, as you have said in the book. Mm -hmm. um, what adjective would you rather use, if not simple? Would you use complex? I would say dynamic. Okay. The, the word I really like to think of is that these are dynamic, that they have that they are complex, um, but sometimes, you know, I don't want people to get hung up on on the idea that something has to be complex or complicated if they're thinking of it in that way, but just that they are dynamic, that they that they create um, uh, uh, understandings and meanings that transcend a simple kind of two dimensional approach. And so dynamic is really the word that I would think that stands out the most to me on something like that. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Uh, and if I have again understood correctly, you're arguing that these pedagogical documents um, complicate our understanding of what a genre is in the classroom. And if I'm allowed to cite you, uh, you have written an quote here. This has implications beyond any single genre. If we understand genre as shaping a discourse community, then understanding a rhetorical nature of pedagogical genre can give us insight into the academic pedagogical community, unquote. Um, is this an attempt to uh, re, re have a relook at the purpose uh, of genre or um, to reimagine what this academic pedagogical community should be? Um, yes, I would say that to 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 restate what you're just saying there is that the idea that this this gives us the opportunity to kind of re-envision or or create a new understanding for the academic pedagogical community, right? And I think yes, absolutely, in part because there is still very strongly in academia writ large a I, I believe a uh, a tendency to deprioritize or kind of create a secondary priority for uh, our role in academia as teachers, as pedagogues, right? That um, uh, many, uh, you know, the academic endeavor, if one uh, acquires a, a tenure track position, for instance, at a university, one of the things that is more often than not kind of dictates what, what will uh, kind of allow one to receive or achieve tenure it's going to be uh, research-based, what their scholarship looks like, right? And in fact, um, leading up to the, you know, the, the publication of this book, one of the primary ways that people did look at academic genre was through the lens, as I mentioned in my little introduction at the start of this uh, interview, uh, as uh, the research identities of the academics, right? And um, there are, you know, the thing is though, there are more people in academia whose primary identity is as a teacher 
then their primary identity is as a researcher or scholar. It's not to say that we are not also scholars uh, in many ways, uh, but the number of universities where uh, the, a, a, a teacher or, excuse me, a faculty member's uh, workload or, or uh, kind of primary, primary focus of their work is to teach two, three, four, or even five classes a term, and then also do research outweighs the number of people who have maybe only teach one or two classes a year and the majority of what they do is research oriented and even those people however do still have at least dip a toe into the the pedagogical field of of teaching a class every once in a while right and so looking and understanding how these pedagogical documents are rhetorical in nature legitimizes and recognizes the legitimacy, shall we say, of the of the pedagogical endeavor itself, and why it's important to care about these things, and and whether it is because we want uh, students coming through a university to have a base level of knowledge and familiarity with the topic, or all the way up to we're hoping to create or convert young minds into the next generation of academics. Whatever it is, we we have to think about what how that happens as teachers, not just researchers. And so um, that's something that I think is very important. And because of the fact that in so many cases, these are documents that don't get seen broadly. It means that people who are who are coming into the the fields of academia who are starting to learn through graduate school or even when they first start their first uh you know uh, um, uh, faculty position may not be seeing a lot of 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 critical inquiry into the things that they're going to have to write they're going to have to draft if they're not drafting or writing those themselves they're uh potentially copying uh, versions of those from ones they received themselves or th their colleagues. I think many, myself included, when we're first presented with, say, when I first started teaching, it's like, oh, you got to put together a syllabus. Oh my gosh, I've never done that before. What do I do? I go and I look at the syllabi I've received. And that's great that those are available perhaps for me. However, it also runs the risk of creating kind of a Xerox effect. If there's something problematic about that syllabus that I'm copying off of, not plagiarizing, I'm not saying that obviously, but uh, but you know, using kind of as a template, if there's something problematic about how it's constructed and how that would reflect a pedagogical uh, desire, then I'm reproducing that 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 problem or that flaw in mine. And what about the next generation? What if the student who I have three years later decides, oh gosh, I've got to put together a syllabus. Let's go look at Dr. Niederheiser's and see what his does. And and we we have a responsibility for thinking about what impact our pedagogy has, not just from the words we say when we walk into a classroom or how we mentor a student when they come to our office or we work with them on research, but also with the documentation that 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 succeeds us, that continues on after they've left our room or the stuff that maybe they don't even see, but is what it was uh, fundamental in creating the opportunity for them to even learn from us, like a course proposal or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, uh, coming back to the two examples you, you gave us for one is that uh, the syllabi is for the teacher to think about the audience, which is the students, and then as a document that evaluates their teaching philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, I've also come across uh, course syllabi posted by professors and instructors on social media and asking for advice from um, other uh, researchers or other professors that follow them on Twitter or something like that. Sure. Um, and I'm not sure if universities take this into account, but I feel like um, this, the, because I have been designing my own course, I feel as if this pedagogical sharing of this pedagogical document on social media um, is opening up the classroom uh, for an evaluation from the whole from the whole world, experts on the whole world. Yeah. And 
do you think I am correct in making making this assumption, or do you think I'm too being too naive about this? <laughs> no, no, I think you're absolutely right. And what's interesting about that, whether or not you would uh, feel this yourself, um, when what you were just describing there with the idea of like opening this up, like posting it on social media, whether everything from Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, I've seen things uh, posted in a lot of different places, such as that. Um, it creates a certain level of anxiety amongst uh, the not just the person who might be posting it, thinking, oh, gosh, I'm opening myself up to critique. Right. But also, I mean, gosh, looking at that from someone else, I could I could kind of experience a secondhand anxiety of like, oh, my gosh, what's this? Go is this going to blow up? You know, how how are people going to react to this positively or negatively? I think that the truth is. That is something that um, is in some in some cases a very brave thing to do to 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 present one's one's pedagogical documentation uh, in that kind of more public arena such as that. Um, I think that uh, it is a it can be a very generative and productive constructive thing to do because as you say you can you can really receive uh, uh, feedback from a, a broad range of people in, in a lot of different uh, perspectives. Um, I think that, you know, it's almost kind of an open sourcing of, of the, uh, of the documentation itself. And I would say that, you know, it's, it's, it, it really falls in line with the same sort of thing that I really want uh, people to be able to kind of take away from a book like this, which is in the, whatever ways we can, we need to make these documents, these, these genres more public, publicly available or visible publicized not not to be confused with published per se there are places and venues in fact where one might be able to publish a syllabus for instance um, which is great but not everyone perhaps feels comfortable with it in that way but making these more visible publicly visible um enables us to help develop our own documents in a more effective way and also recognize the fact that these don't need to be hidden genres um, that one of the things that I have I have faced as a resistance a point of resistance when it comes to talking about things like the syllabus uh, is well but you know these 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 only apply to a classroom and so they wouldn't make sense contextually outside of that classroom if I uh, make these more publicly visible or available then that people are going to draw the wrong conclusions or they're not going to understand what I'm trying to do those are the direct questions that need to be addressed why not why how is it that those things can't carry context with them or or what what can be gained by making that more visible there are people who do feel as if uh the syllabus for instance is a uh, a, a an aspect of kind of uh, intellectual property and so for openly sharing it you are kind of exposing yourself to uh people kind of taking from your intellectual property. Um, and that's a that's a murky issue in my opinion right there. And so I, I'm not gonna dive too deeply into it, but the uh, someone who is willing to kind of uh, present whether or not they would consider it, uh, their intellectual property in that way can benefit not only themselves, but the larger community of pedagogical uh, 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 participants, uh, because you get to see more of those examples. So you're not just drawing on the ones that you got from your own teachers or, you know, the, the the professor who you have been kind of assigned to as your mentor who says, well, this is how you should write it or the how-to advice texts that just say, make sure you have these things and don't forget that you could be sued if you don't do it right, which is all largely inaccurate, but people really fear it. There's a lot of those anxieties that come from that. And I, and I like the fact that you use the word public here, because that leads to my next question um, about this dual identity of scholar and teacher, which is also this dual, this public um, scholarly work, which is increasingly open access, and then teacher pedagogical documents that are if not private, but for limited consumption only. And I, and I feel like um on social media and um, they're also actually published. I've seen syllabus published on academia so they can have their mm -hmm. publication. Um, is this um, in some ways an attempt to undo this? Can it be read like that? Or um, 
Yes, I think so. I think it really can be it. Um, it you know, it's, uh, this this sort of thing can happen in kind of two ways. It can happen from the top down, sort of like, you know, right by uh, at the research level, really encouraging institutionally that there be a more a, a larger openness of these types of documents, which itself sometimes does come with its own complications or or limitations on what can be done or kind of more grassroots in the sense of people presenting those, whether it is through social media or like you said, academia.edu or some of those types of, of sites where those things can be shared. Um, it, you know, it's always, it's it's a little weird sometimes whenever um, I've actually even found um, students posting my syllabus through some of those websites where, you know, you can post notes or or quizzes and assignments that that professors have, have uh, shared so that way, oh, you know, to help other people out. And it doesn't really bother me because I know that, you know, that that if anything, someone looking at my syllabus is going to give them hopefully a better sense of what I'm doing in the classroom, not that it's going to give them a, a, a an edge, some kind of, you know, uh, uh, unfair advantage or anything like that. But, yeah, they're, they're, I think that this can be uh, seen as a way to undo some of the um, the assumed restrictions on how broadly these things should be viewed. The irony is majority, I'm not going to say all, but many of the pedagogical genres that, for instance, are reflected in this book, which again, go everything from like in-class genres, such as the syllabus, the assignment sheet, uh, grade feedback, but also outside of uh, the classroom, things like the teaching statement or uh, the departmental teaching handbooks or or policy documents, policy statements that apply to the classroom, but are actually created and designed and and, and composed outside of the classroom by a department or by a university, things like that. The many of these genres are not inherently and and even like in any context or, or sense of the term meant to be hidden. They're not uh, there's no legality of saying that no one can see these except for the student in the classroom, for instance. Um, in many cases, uh, obviously, something like a policy document that a university establishes is more often than not publicly visible and available on the university's website because these are policies that apply to anyone that's associated with the university and so what it, it, the idea of for instance um you know analyzing and discussing it's like well how do these policy statements create a uh, uh generate a certain uh generative teaching environment or learning environment doesn't have to be hidden away and um and but because they tend to get associated with a single university, a single professor, a single classroom, those sorts of things, the assumption is they shouldn't be shared or they shouldn't be viewed or understood outside of those contexts. And so whenever someone does post or share them in their in, through their own agency on a site such as the ones we've talked about, um, it does represent an opportunity to at least kind of dispel some of those those myths but also anxieties about what it means for them to be shared more broadly which is very useful because the more examples you can see the better enabled you can be to compose an effective rhetorical document yourself um and um do you i mean you you argue that it's important to examine and understand these documents um and see how the professors, the administrators, and students are in this complex network. Yeah. But what is this purpose of unoccluding, if I can take your word, uh, mm -hmm. or bringing this to the forefront? Um, it, it's not really just for doing that. How do you understand the purpose of this? Of kind of removing that occlusion? Yeah. Right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so just to to make sure that the you know anyone listening in understands what you know we're talking about I, the the occlusion of of the genres is this idea as I was mentioning earlier that that um, these genres are kind of they almost they exist in this kind of partially hidden uh, realm where they're not immediately or or uh, readily visible to a broader audience they are meant or ass assumed to be meant. For this smaller audience, whether it's a single classroom of students or, well, this can only be viewed by the person who's reading my job application because that's who I'm writing it for, that sort of thing, right? Um, and so the problems with occlusion is that it makes it difficult for other people to see examples. It makes it difficult to recognize kind of how 
uh, what kind of impact or how influential these documents can be on our own identities beyond that one simple situation. And so what I do argue for and what this book is in, in, in a strong way about is trying to unocclude, as you were saying there, uh, the, uh, the, the, the realm of pedagogical genres. And so the, the value of doing that um, is is really there's there's multiple values and one of them right off the bat is for the benefit of of what I would call and I have called in, in other research kind of the initiates to the fields the initiates to academia uh, the 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 people who are who are just entering into the field and as I was you know I've said earlier you know people who might only have as their own examples syllabi that they've gotten from their own uh, faculty, for instance, right, or things of that nature. Um, and so giving them opportunities beyond just simply like, oh, we're going to have a workshop where we're going to talk about how to write a syllabus, which I'm never going to diminish or say you shouldn't do. I mean, that's a great thing to have. Uh, I think, you know, as many kind of pedagogical workshops as you can is, is a really useful thing. Uh, but having those other methods by which they can see people talking about these documents, and and exploring them and researching them and and sharing about them, whether it's posting them onto online sites as we've been talking about, or in the case of this book, um, really you know showing it's like oh wow this document can be subject to a a a a concerted scholarly study just like whatever I'm working on as my primary scholarly research topic, uh, whether it's literature, whether it's sciences, uh, you know uh, engineering that this this document is is something worth understanding makes ensures that the, the 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 new generations that come into academia have that awareness or have access to that awareness but also as we've also uh talked about uh in in other ways in uh, earlier today here is that this allows the opportunity to make sure that more fluent or more uh veteran members of academia can 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 remind themselves of their own roles with those documents that they've created and perhaps not re not not really revised or updated for years um not to say that everyone is like that they, i know I, I have colleagues who are very very uh, uh attentive to making sure every year that their documentation is updated to kind of reflect any changes that they've made in their teaching or where how they view their students and what they want their students to be able to understand but then there's also the very easy impulse of saying oh boy i'm going to teach that same class you know what i'm just going to go ahead and switch out the top material about what dates that the the class will meet on and everything and everything else just kind of gets to be the same well, sometimes we need to be able to kind of take a step back and really audit our own materials. And um, and that can be done not just at the classroom level, but all the way up again to the institutional level. One of the things that I'm really interested in exploring moving on from this book is how these types of documents, which are, again, often occluded, carry with them a certain additional dimension of institutional memory. And the idea basically that there, and, and in fact, some of the contributors to this book kind of uh, touch on this in the sense of saying a syllabus that that was created five years ago in some ways might be reflecting decisions and discussions and mandates made within the department or the university five years ago. And anyone who spends any amount of time in the university knows that five years is a lot of time and things change. Decisions change, policies change, uh, leadership or administrative leadership changes, and new initiatives or programs or decisions get made. But some of those artifacts might still be present in the syllabus that's listing off the policies for the classroom or in the departmental handbook that talks about what every faculty member needs to do is going to be based on certain things that no longer exist in any other form that there wasn't a record for the decision changed on this date and now we're doing something different. And so unoccluding those genres is not just simply saying, hey, we want to bring more respect to uh, pedagogical genres as a scholar, uh, scholarly topic of study, but also we need to recognize that unoccluding those genres means also unoccluding the situations and scenarios that, that really feed into the creation of those genres, the discussions and decisions that get made that allow for them to continue on, which is the underpinning of the academic institution at large. Um, and I always ask this question at the end of my podcast, mm -hmm. but I think it's especially relevant for you. Um, mm -hmm. 
what do you hope changes in academia after this book? Or if this is so strong, <laughs> what do you hope the readers take from this book? Oh boy, those are two really different questions. I would say, <laughs> I would say what I what I do hope that people would take from this book is a um, a a new or renewed uh, awareness of the impact that the 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 writing that they do as teachers has on their own identity as well as every aspect of the academic institution that surrounds them. Um, and I say new or renewed because I'm not going to imply or suggest that that people don't already recognize this. Uh, some people may be learning it for the first time because they're just starting out with things. A graduate student taking a look at this book, I would hope, would really kind of realize, oh, wow, these are things I never would have thought about just because I'm going to become a teacher, a professor. I just thought I was going to go in and talk and make some PowerPoints for my students, right? It's like, no, no, no. You also need to think about what that syllabus says <laughs> or how how the language of your grading feedback will, will kind of emphasize certain things of your pedagogy. I would want them to realize that if they hadn't had the opportunity to see it before. But I also want, again, those veteran teachers, the ones who have been professors or faculty or uh, or long term you know, uh, teaching assistants uh, to to be able to to be give, give them some affirmation that the, the work and the writing they do, the activity that 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 underpins their pedagogy is valued and should be recognized as having merit. I think that's what one of the most important things I would want people to come out of with this book. Now, separately of that, I would say as far as like how I would want academia to to uh, to change along with this is um, that sometimes some of the things, in fact, in this book that that do talk about uh, everything from the syllabus to the teaching handbook don't just don't re they relate differently to different groupings of people in academia, the graduate student, the adjunct teacher, the part time temporary instructor, the full professor. And one of the things that sometimes does get kind of fallen within the cracks in academia is, especially for those who are in more contingent positions, what kind of agency they have. The very first chapter of this book is written by a, 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 a man who has is writing from the perspective of being an adjunct professor uh, on a temporary basis, and being uh, expected to use a syllabus that he did not create and and kind of exploring kind of how what kind of agency does he have as a teacher when he has virtually no involvement whatsoever in creating the kind of foundational document that his students will receive and um and th that that is a that is a a vein of, of thought and inquiry and discussion that I think appears multiple times throughout this book. And I hope people kind of think about that too, is that that not everyone is, is writing or composing from a privileged perspective and understanding and recognizing that might give a little bit more uh, ability to, to see where those, where, where all the different mm, rankings, if we want to use that term, uh, can be empowered more in, in academia. Thank you. Um, and thank you for taking the time out to talk to me. And I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Yeah, wonderful. It was very wonderful talking with you. And hopefully I didn't, you know, kind of talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thank you, too. Bye.